Welcome to Murder Bucket. I'm your host, Hannah, and this is the podcast where I dive deep into murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, and weird stuff. Let's see what I'm going to pull out of the bucket this week. Good evening and welcome to another beautiful Tuesday. You have made it to part three of the People's Temple. And tonight we will be discussing the beginnings of Jonestown, the downfall, a little bit of an investigation that went on, and unfortunately, the mass suicide that happened. If you have not had the chance to listen to part one and two of the People's Temple, stop here, go back, and listen. They are episodes 62 and 63. Because if you listen to tonight's episode, you might get a little confused. Before we move further, let's go ahead and do our week slash weekend recap. My work last week was actually closed on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And I'm not sure if I mentioned that in last week's episode. And the reason why we were closed is because this Monday, so yesterday, we implemented a new system at my work for the things that I do, and we needed those last three days to get like an all-day training session down so that we could try and help as many people as we could and know as many answers as we could as soon as the system went live. So that was fun. It was nice to not have customers come in the door or have a butt ton of emails coming through or voicemails or just anything like that. It was nice to have the time to really sit down, look at the new system, train on it, ask as many questions as we could, And, you know, just kind of like help each other as much as we could, honestly. Then Friday, I actually ended up leaving early from work uh, because I had a doctor's appointment at the Wilmer Eye Institute in Baltimore. And the reason I went out there is I've been having a lot of issues with like my eyesight physically. A lot of things are just blurry all the time and the blurriness kind of fluctuates every day. I actually have a genetic bone disease that causes the like thin layer of your eyes called the corneas to be extremely thin to where I actually tear the corneas a lot. Um, So that's been happening quite a bit. I mean... I've kind of done it my entire life, but it's never happened this frequently before. So I had been to many other eye doctors and cornea specialists and like retina specialists and you name it, I've probably been there. And none of the treatments that we have tried, none of the eye drops or warm compresses or ointments or anything like that have been helping and things have just kind of gradually gotten worse. So I decided to make an appointment with the Wilmer Eye Institute to potentially see if we could figure something out. So I went, I ended up spending all day there, and the conclusion from that appointment was 
the oil glands in my eyelids are 100% blocked. So the doctor gave me a medication to take every day for 30 days. I'm going to go back if the medication has either not helped or has only helped a tiny bit. Then they want to test me for a potential autoimmune disease because my husband and I actually read up that a lot of autoimmune diseases can affect your eyesight. So I kind of mentioned that and that's where we're going to go if the medication doesn't work. So hopefully it does because taking a medication versus having an autoimmune disease on top of everything else that I have would be a whole lot simpler. Saturday, we really didn't do a whole lot. We really just kind of hung out around the house. And then I actually went out with a friend of mine to go work on my husband's anniversary present. Our 12th wedding anniversary was this past Sunday, so February 27th. And we like to give each other the traditional gifts every year. So I think one year it was iron and brass and copper. And this year's traditional gift was linen. Now for me, I had no idea what I was going to get my husband that was made out of linen that he would either use or wear. So I decided to work with one of our friends named Gavin, who actually works for a cabinetry company and is like very good, like hands-on and is great with tools and building things. So him and I ended up building a cabinet that hangs on the wall that holds all of his hats and his sunglasses. I bought a like a yard of linen from Etsy that was in the color of oyster white because that is also the color of year 12. So we lined the sides and like the inside of the cabinet with the linen. And then I bought just a small sample can of paint that was oyster white. And we painted the rest of it in that color. And it's currently hanging on his wall in our bedroom. But unfortunately, we are going to have to make like the holes where his glasses fit just a little bit bigger because not all of them fit in there. It's really not that big of a deal. It's kind of like, I guess, like a pain in the butt only because I wanted it to be completely finished. But he's hung all of his hats on there and it looks fantastic and he's actually using it. So it's just wonderful. And my husband got me a printed uh, linen in a frame of a song that I really like by an artist named Tyler Childers. And then he also got the vinyl with that song on it, which I thought was really cute. So that is now hanging in our hallway so I can look at it all the time. And then for our anniversary on Sunday, we ended up going out to Top Golf in our area, which was the first time for me, not the first time for Zachary. He's gone previously. So we did that during the day on Sunday. And then we came back to the house, got changed and went out to dinner. And then we came back to the house and ended up getting into a big like Nerf gun fight and war with all of the friends that came over to watch our child, which I thought was really cute because we asked one person in our friends group to watch our daughter 
And it turned out to be, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven people ended up coming over, hanging out with our daughter, watching Disney movies, playing board games, and, you know, just having fun without us. Which is not a big deal because I thought it was really cute. And then we got to Monday where our new system got implemented at my work. We opened back up to the public. Let me just tell you, it was a dumpster fire. Everything that could go wrong went wrong yesterday. Everything that could go wrong went wrong today. And I am just so physically, mentally, and emotionally drained. But we are here. You are hanging out with me. And we have an episode that we have to talk about. So let me stop babbling and just go ahead and get into tonight's episode because it is jam-packed with information. We have The People's Temple, Part 3. I touched base a little last week as to why Jim chose Guyana. So let's go further in-depth as to the reason. A former member stated in an article on the NewYorkTimes.com that the reason for choosing Guyana was the temple's view of a perceived dominance of racism and multinational corporations in the U.S. government. They believed that because Guyana had a predominantly indigenous population and the government included prominent black leaders, that the black members would feel as though it was a peaceful place to live. Forbes Burnham, Guyanese Prime Minister, believed that Jim wanted to use cooperatives as the basis for establishment of socialism and the idea of setting up his commune worked well with that. Jim, on the other hand, believed that because Guyana was small and poor, that he would be able to obtain official protection from the legal troubles that he was facing in the United States. I also mentioned last week that in 1974, that they were able to purchase land, but it wasn't as simple as finding the land, buying it, and everything was good. Jim and several members traveled to Northwest Guyana to meet with Guyanese officials to negotiate a lease of over 3,800 acres of land that was located 150 miles west of Georgetown. According to Guyanese standards, the land had soil that was low fertility and was extremely isolated. The closest body of water was seven miles away. And according to several articles, Guyanese officials believed that with the land being so close to the border of Venezuela and it being leased by Americans, that it would deter a military insurgent. During negotiations of the land, 500 members traveled to Guyana to help with the construction of houses, commercial buildings, and etc. When Jim wanted the rest of his members to relocate, he made an agreement that would guarantee Guyanese officials would allow the mass migration. He claimed that all of the members were highly skilled and progressive. When the members did arrive, they began to overwhelm the government's small but stringent immigration infrastructure. Their immigration procedures were then compromised when they began to inhibit the departures of temple members 
who were trying to defect, as well as stop entrance of people who were against the temple itself. Prime Minister Forbes stated that the reason Guyana allowed Jim to operate the temple in the manner that he did was based on the references from First Lady Rosalind Carter, presidential candidate Walter Mondale, and San Francisco Mayor George Moscone. He stated that when his deputy minister traveled to D.C. in September of 1977 to sign the Panama Canal Treaties, he was asked directly from Walter Mondale how Jim was doing. The deputy minister thought that with this, he had a personal interest in Jim's well-being. In the summer of 1977, there were several hundred members who had made the permanent move to Jonestown. This was because of intense pressure that was building from the San Francisco media investigation. Once the mass migration happened, Jonestown quickly became overcrowded. Population in July was roughly 100 people, but by September, there were well over 700 people there. At its peak population in 1978, there were just under 900 people there. Before Jim permanently relocated to Jonestown, many members described life in Guyana as exactly what he promised, a paradise. But as soon as Jim started living there, things changed drastically. Many of the buildings on the site fell into disrepair and weeds began to overtake the open fields. School studies and lectures for adults turned into Jim's discussions about revolution and enemies. He began to teach lessons that focused mainly on Soviet alliances and his own crises. The work week was turned into six days a week with 11 and a half hour shifts and only an hour for lunch. Jim's health then began to deteriorate in 1978 and his wife Marceline started taking over his operations to reduce his stress level and workload. She was able to reduce the work schedule down to eight-hour shifts five days a week. Once the work shift was over, however, members were required to attend several hours of activities in a pavilion that included lengthy classes in socialism. These classes were often Jim reading news and commentary, which included items from Radio Moscow and Radio Havana. He compared this schedule to that of the North Korean system, which was eight hours of daily work followed by eight hours of study. When such news items were talked about, Jim would interrogate individuals about the implications and subtext of that specific news. He would also deliver lengthy monologues regarding how to read certain news events. When there was any free time for members to watch TV, it was highly monitored. No matter how politically neutral it seemed, a temple staffer had to be present to quote-unquote interpret the material for the people that were watching. This meant bashing criticisms of perceived capitalist propaganda in Western material, and praising any Marxist lineist messages in material from communist nations. According to Wikipedia.com, Marxism and Leninism is a communist ideology which was the main communist movement throughout the 20th century. 
It was the formal name of the official state ideology adopted by the Soviet Union. There were constant broadcasts over the loudspeakers throughout Jonestown of Jim's pre-recorded readings of news. This was played day and night for everyone to hear. In his news readings, he would portray the U.S. as a capitalist and imperialist villain while casting socialist leaders such as Kim Il-sung, Robert Muckabee, and Joseph Stalin in a positive light. For Jim and top temple officials to communicate with the outside world, they had to use what was called a shortwave radio. Any voice communications with San Francisco and Georgetown were transmitted using the radio. They did this with the super mundane supply orders to highly confidential temple business. At one point, the Federal Communications Commission cited Jim and the temple on several occasions, on technical violations, and for using amateur frequencies for commercial purposes. Jim believed that the FCC's threats to revoke their operator's license threatened Jonestown's existence. Like I mentioned earlier, the land that they had leased had soil that had very low fertility. This meant that Jonestown could not be self-sufficient with growing their own food. So instead, they had to import large amounts of commodities. They ate meals that consisted of nothing more than rice, beans, and greens. There was only some times where they ate meat, sauce, and eggs. Because of their poor diet, many members suffered with severe diarrhea and high fevers. Even though members helped with the construction of the communal houses, they were very small. Most of the walls were woven from truly palm. Even with an estimated $26 million by late 1978, Jim also lived in a small communal house. While Jonestown did not have a prison or an actual form of capital punishment, they did, however, have various forms of punishment that were used against members who were considered to have serious disciplinary issues. Some of these forms of punishment were to imprison a person in a 6 by 4 by 3 plywood box, as well as force children to spend the night at the bottom of a well. For members who attempted to escape, they were administered drugs such as thorazine, sodium pentothal, chloral hydrate, Demerol, and Valium in a quote-unquote extended care unit. Jim also had armed guards patrolling the areas day and night to enforce all of his rules. Have any of you ever seen the Hulu series called The Handmaid's Tale? Well, the next bit that I'm about to share sounds a lot like what went down in this series to the children of the current handmaids. All of the children were surrendered to communal care and were only allowed to see their biological parents for a brief time at night. Jim forced all members, including children, to call him either father or dad. None of the children were allowed to sleep in the same house as their biological parents. Now we're going to move on to something called white night rehearsals. Jim would often address members regarding Jonestown's safety. 
He would include statements that the CIA was conspiring with capitalist pigs to destroy the settlement and harm its inhabitants. After work hours, the temple often conducted what they called white nights. These were fake emergencies played out and Jim would give members four options to choose from. Would they flee to the Soviet Union? Commit revolutionary suicide? Stay and fight? Or flee into the jungle? During at least two white night rehearsals, a revolutionary suicide vote was reached. A simulated mass suicide was then rehearsed. Deborah Layton, who is a temple defector, described one of these events in an affidavit from the San Diego State University that says this. Everyone, including the children, were told to line up. As we passed through the line, we were given a small glass of red liquid to drink. We were told that the liquid contained poison and that we would die within 45 minutes. We all did as we were told. When the time came when we should have dropped dead, Reverend Jones explained that the poison was not real and that we had just been through a loyalty test. He warned us that the time was not far off when it would become necessary for us to die by our own hands. Prior to Jim starting these white nights, he went through a custody battle with former members Tim and Grace Stowen. The couple went to a Georgetown court to produce an order for the temple to show cause why a final order should not be issued to return their five-year-old son, John. A second order was then issued a few days later for John to be taken into protective custody by authorities. Jim once did an interview with the San Francisco Examiner reporter Tim Ritterman regarding this custody battle. This prompted the immediate threat of a lawsuit by the temple. This devastated their reputation and made many supporters suspicious of the temple's claims that they were the victim of a rightist vendetta. Many people did remain loyal to the temple even after this. Harvey Milk wrote a letter to President Jimmy Carter defending Jim as a man of the highest character and stated that the temple defectors were trying to damage his reputation and everything they said were bold-faced lies. Several concerned relatives of temple members distributed packets of documents that included letters and affidavits that were titled Accusation of Human Rights Violations by Reverend James Warren Jones. They sent these to members of the press, members of Congress, and members within the temple itself. Another affidavit was then produced later on that detailed alleged crimes by the temple as well as the substandard living conditions. Three of those concerned relatives filed a lawsuit in May and June of 1978 against Jim and several other temple members. They were seeking in excess of $56 million in damages. Jim turned around and filed a lawsuit against Tim Stowen on July 10, 1978, seeking $150 million in damages. Jim feared that he would be held in contempt of court, and this caused him to set up a fake sniper attack on himself. 
This is what started his first series of White Knights to which he called the Six-Day Siege. Once the Six-Day Siege was over, Jim felt as though the Guyanese could no longer be trusted. He and several members held meetings with the embassies of the Soviet Union, North Korea, Yugoslavia, and Cuba. Negotiations with the Soviet embassy included discussions of possible resettlement there. Jim produced material that was passed out to members discussing potential places within the USSR in which they might settle. A high-ranking correspondent of Soviet news agency TASS and his wife visited Jim and the compound at Jonestown. Even though Jim, high-ranking members, and the congregation voiced their thoughts about moving their operations to the Soviet Union, Jim ultimately changed his mind. His reasoning for this was that he preferred to stay within the Guyanese borders because of the sovereignty it afforded them. Jim's health then began to significantly decline, and he was informed that he might have lung infection. Upon this diagnosis, he instead informed all of his followers that he had lung cancer. He did this to get sympathy and continue to strengthen the support within the community. He began to start abusing injectable Valium, Quaaludes, and stimulants. There are several audio tapes from meetings in 1978 that attested to Jim's failing health. He suffered from high blood pressure, small strokes, had a 30 to 40 pound weight loss, had temporary blindness, convulsions, and at one point, he was confined to his cabin with swelling of his extremities. He also mentioned having insomnia and would go three to four days without any sleep. There were several times where when he was reading typed reports over the PA system, he could not finish a sentence. He used to have a sharp speaking voice, and now it sounded slurred. Several top leaders were caught off guard by his severe deterioration. Tim Ritterman, from the San Francisco Examiner, had covered Jonestown for 18 months, and after seeing Jim for the first time in a long time, in November of 1978, he stated that it was shocking to see his glazed eyes and festering paranoia face-to-face and to realize that nearly a thousand lives were in his hands. In November of 1978, Congressman Leo Ryan stated that he was going to visit Jonestown. He flew to Jonestown on November 14th with the following people. Jackie Spire, who was his legal advisor at the time, Neville Anaborn, representing Guyana's Ministry of Information, Richard Dwyer, the Deputy Chief of Mission of the U.S. Embassy to Guyana, Tim Ritterman, San Francisco Examiner reporter, Greg Robinson, San Francisco Examiner photographer, Don Harris, NBC reporter, Bob Brown, NBC camera operator, Steve Sung, NBC audio tech, Bob Flick, NBC producer, Charles Krauss, Washington Post reporter, and Rob Javers, San Francisco Chronicle reporter. When they first arrived, they were denied entrance to Jonestown, and Congressman Leo stated 
that he would get into Jonestown regardless of anyone's pushback. Once the entire party arrived at the entrance, only Congressman Leo and three others were allowed inside. The rest of them, though, were allowed in after sunset. On the first evening, they were all required to attend a musical reception in the main pavilion. During this reception, Jim stated that he felt like a dying man and started to rant about government conspiracies. In later reports, which were confirmed with audio tapes, Jim forced all of his members to rehearse how to convince Congressman Leo and his group that everyone was happy and all was well. That evening, two Temple members made their first moves for defection. They both mistook an NBC reporter for the congressman and passed him a note that read, Dear Congressman, Vernon Gonsney and Monica Baggy, please help us get out of Jonestown. A child saw this interaction and alerted another Temple member. By reading this note, the reporter and Congressman Leo knew something was very wrong within Jonestown. Congressman Leo, Jackie, Richard, and Neville were told that they were welcome to spend the night in Jonestown, while the rest of the group had to find somewhere else to sleep. Once this visit was over, the majority of the group that came with Congressman Leo departed for the Port Cayuma airstrip. Congressman Leo and Richard stayed behind at Jonestown to assist with anyone that still wanted to defect. After the initial group left, Congressman Leo was attacked with a knife. Several people wrestled his attacker to the ground and he was left unharmed. Richard then suggested that they leave Jonestown immediately. A truck that was on its way to the airstrip, stopped midway after learning that Congressman Leo had been attacked and offered him and Richard a ride. A 19-passenger twin otter plane was originally booked to fly everyone back to Georgetown, but with a large number of defectors, another plane had to be brought in. The U.S. Embassy arranged for that other plane. Their planes, however, did not arrive when scheduled. Instead, they all waited outside on the airstrip for about 45 minutes until they finally showed up, and they began the boarding process. When everyone was on board and the plane had taxied to the far end of the airstrip, a passenger pulled out a handgun and began shooting. He wounded two people and then attempted to wound another but ended up being disarmed. Moments later, members of the temple's Red Brigade security squad arrived and began opening fire with shotguns, handguns, and rifles. Bob Brown, George Robinson, Don Harris, and a temple defector were killed instantly. Congressman Leo Ryan was killed after being shot more than 20 times. Nine other people were injured. Both pilots and co-pilots of the planes fled the area, leaving the damaged plane and those injured group members. Over at Georgetown, Marceline Jones made a broadcast over the PA system stating that everything was okay and asked everyone to return to their homes. During this, 
many temple members began to prepare large metal tubs with grape flavor aid drink and poisoned it all with a number of drugs. Thirty minutes later, Jim made an announcement over the PA system calling all members to the pavilion immediately. Jim stated this to the group after everyone had gathered together. One of those people on that plane is going to shoot the pilot, I know that. I didn't plan it, but I know it's going to happen. They're going to shoot that pilot and down comes the plane into the jungle and we had better not have any of our children left when it's over because they'll parachute in here on us. The ones that they take captured, they're going to just let them grow up and be dummies. When the members of the Red Brigade returned, they confirmed that Congressman Leo was dead. Jim then stated that the Red Brigade were the only ones who made any sense and that they showed them real justice. Here is a short clip of what Jim told all of the members in the pavilion that was later titled The Death Tapes. How very much I've loved you. How very much I've tried my best to give you a good life. But in spite of all of that I've tried, a handful of our people with their lives have made our life impossible. There's no way to detach ourselves from what's happened today. Not only we're in a compound situation, not only are there those who have left and committed the betrayal of the century, some have stolen children from others and they're in pursuit right now to kill them because they stole their children. And we, we are sitting here waiting on a powder keg. I don't think this is what we want to do with our babies. I don't think that's what we had in mind to do with our babies. It was said by the greatest of prophets from time immemorial. No man lay, takes my life from me. I lay my life down. Jim then instructed everyone to begin taking the poison. The first member to do so was Ruletta Paul and her one-year-old child. She squirted the poison into the baby's mouth and then her own. Jim then began walking around encouraging people to drink. The poison caused infants to die within a matter of a couple of minutes. It was five minutes for children and between 20 and 30 minutes for most adults. After consuming the poison, the members were then escorted down a wooden walkway leading outside the pavilion. Jim stated this after seeing the poison has started to take effect. Die with a degree of dignity. Lay down your life with dignity. Don't lay down with tears and agony. I tell you, I don't care how many screams you hear. I don't care how many anguished cries. Death is a million times preferable to ten more days in this life. If you knew what was ahead of you, you'd be glad to be stepping over tonight. Many parents cried in hysteria as they watched their children die from the poison. Many people quietly waited their turn to die. As many more members died, the guards that were patrolling were called in to die by poisoning. Jim was found dead between two other bodies and his head was cushioned by a pillow. 
it was later determined that he died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Three high-ranking members were given a suitcase filled with $550,000 and an envelope that they had to deliver to the Soviet embassy in Georgetown. Because of this, they escaped death. Two other members who were supposed to be poisoned also survived. Grover Davis, who was hard of hearing, actually missed the announcement over the PA system and instead laid down in a ditch and pretended to be dead. Hyacinth Thrash realized what was happening and instead hid under her bed and then left once everyone was dead. A total of 918 men, women, children, and babies died that day. The events at Jonestown constituted the greatest single loss of American civilian life in a deliberate act until the incidents of September 11, 2001. 914 of the 918 that were dead were collected by the United States military in Guyana and transported by military cargo planes to Dover Air Force Base in Delaware. The base's mortuary was tasked with fingerprinting, identifying, and processing the bodies. Many of those individuals who helped with this began showing signs of PTSD. The responsibility for cremation of the remains were distributed to Dover area funeral homes. In August of 2014, nine remains that had been unclaimed were found in a former funeral home. In September of the same year, four of those remains had been returned to their next of kin. The final five unclaimed remains were then interred at the Jonestown Memorial at Evergreen Cemetery in Oakland, California, along with the remains of about half of those who died on November 18, 1978. And that concludes Part 3 in the People's Temple. I hope you enjoyed the three parts of the People's Temple and maybe learned something new that you didn't know. Before you go this evening, please take a moment to listen to this promo from my friends at the Crime Obscene Podcast. Hello, I'm Aaron, the host of Crime Obscene, a monthly true crime podcast that focuses on unsolved murders disappearances and beyond from around the world, like the disappearance and suspected homicide of Deirdre Jacob, what happened to Jalik Rainwalker, and the next episode to be released, Where is Jennifer Kessie? You can find Crime Obscene on all your favourite podcatchers, and we're on social media at Crime Obscene Podcast. Thanks for sticking around to the end. I hope you have enjoyed tonight's episode. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at MurderBucket, Twitter at The Murder Bucket, and Facebook at Bucket Murd. Check out weekly posts regarding new episodes and chime in on the weekend slash week recaps. I would love to get to know you better. Have a great day.